Dear Father, we do have such a joy to open your word and to see what's in it each and every time. To explore the depths of what you've prepared for us here. We hunger for it, Father, like you describe it as the bread of life. And we thirst for it, Father. And we yearn to understand it so that we can know you better. And we yearn to know you better so we can follow you better. And we do these things, Father, not because our flesh is inclined, but because the Spirit in us has caused us to see these things as necessary and meaningful and joyful. You've given us, Father, a new perspective. And your word is the means by which we come to realize that goal in our life of obedience and in our obedience, showing you love. And so, Father, I thank you. Thank you for that blessing and for the gift to teach and for those who would care to take time out of their busy day and their busy week to listen and to understand these things. You could deliver these things in a hundred thousand million ways, Father, but you choose to do it in this way tonight. And I praise you for that. Now, Father, help our hearts be ready to hear it, our minds attentive and give us the, the understanding of the gravity of what it means to sit at your feet so that we don't take it for granted. I pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's go into chapter 15. As we enter it, let's reset the scene. Jesus continues to prepare his disciples for his departure while they recline at the table in the upper room. So in chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17, all of these chapters were still in the same moment in the upper room during what was the Passover meal the night before Jesus is crucified. Last week in chapter 14, he explained to the disciples how they would find power and knowledge to continue the work of the church in his absence. The Lord said, first, he'll grant them the spirit. Then by the spirit, they'll have the necessary spiritual knowledge, the spiritual insight to make sense of what Jesus has said to them. In fact, it'll be the case that the spirit will bring these words back to their mind, which is how they remembered them. And then on top of that, of course, having brought them back to mind, it will be by that same spirit that they will preserve the inspired thought of God in Scripture, which these men all authored. The apostles are the source of our Scripture in the New Testament. And then we said, of course, today, similarly, those in the faith have the Holy Spirit indwelling so that we can then understand the truth of Scripture as we read it. In a very real sense, as you read Scripture and understand it, it is the same author who wrote it now living in you to interpret it back to you, which is why you can understand it. Now, as we've seen from the start of this discourse, the disciples, as they hear this from Jesus, are struggling with the notion of him leaving. It doesn't make sense to them yet. They can't understand why he is leaving, much less where he is going or when he might return. So consequently, they're hearing all of these instructions, but they probably aren't listening very well. It's not making a big impression. I would imagine if you've ever been in a situation where you're listening to someone speak to you and they say something that catches your attention and confuses you, the next two sentences they speak, you didn't hear. You're too busy trying to reprocess what you just heard. And there seems to be a bit of that going on here based on what they've said and on some of the questions we're going to see them raise in, in future chapters in this discourse. And then, adding to all of their confusion, you have Jesus explaining all these things in haste. He knows that his time is short. He knows he's about to be handed over to the Romans by Judas, and that moment is fast approaching. And so there are all these things he wants to say while he still has a chance to say it. And in fact, you notice at the very end of chapter 14, in verse 31, Jesus says to them, we're going to have to move out of this room. We're going to have to move on quickly. And as I mentioned, this discourse runs another three chapters into the end of chapter 17. So there's still quite a bit left. So naturally, when we looked at the end of chapter 14 last week, you would naturally have assumed then that the rest of this discourse, chapters 15, 16 and 17, must be taking place some other place 
like the Kidron Valley or, or wherever they're going to end up. But don't make that assumption. In fact, after the discourse ends at the end of 17, look at the very beginning of chapter 18, verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, referring to the whole discourse, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Well, they're in Bethany. You go over this ravine of Kidron and you end up at what we now know of as the Mount of Olives. So it would seem that Jesus' statement at the end of 14, in which he says, hey, we need to get up and get out of here, was merely a preparatory comment intended to indicate that we're going to be leaving here pretty soon. But before he actually got up and left, he continued speaking for a time, which is what we have now in 15, 16, and 17. Sort of like a guest at a dinner party who may remark at some point in the night, hey, it's time we've got to go. And then they talk a little while longer before they actually walk out the door. That's happened probably to all of us. Well, that's what you kind of see happening here. Therefore, as we enter chapter 15, we're still in the upper room. But the point's been made. We don't have a lot of time, and we have to talk quickly. Finally, before we look at 15, we have to remember the theme that Jesus is emphasizing both in 14 and now as he enters into 15. He's preparing his disciples to function in his absence. And he's doing so by reinforcing for them the need to rely on his power, his authority, his word, his name, even as they go about their work. He's appointing them as his representatives. They're commissioned to serve his interests. He isn't handing them a franchise. He's not giving them some independent operation under the name Jesus, Inc. He is preparing to be a hands-on manager of his church, even in his physical absence. And he told the disciples he would exert his leadership and his direction through the spirit living in them. And therefore, they have to respond by loving him, by obeying him, by keeping his commandments, which would be their commission. And in fact, as you saw last week in chapter 14, Jesus challenged the disciples by saying if they fail to keep his instructions, then they do not love him in the, in the sense of active demonstration of love. Only by keeping his commandments can you demonstrate love to Christ. For the one who does so, Jesus promised that he and his father would disclose themselves to him, which would mean that the father and the son would reveal themselves in greater and greater ways to the believer who is keeping his commandments, leaving that person stronger spiritually. And I went through all of that because, as you're going to see, it is very important to maintain your understanding of the context in which Jesus is speaking when you enter chapter 15. In fact, it's so important. I want to show you where the context goes after chapter 15. Jump to chapter 16 for just a second. We've taken careful note of the context leading into the chapter, and we need to observe that that context continues to follow all the way into chapter 16. Look at the first verses of 16. Jesus summarizes his own teaching from chapter 15 this way. Verse 1. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them, these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Now, we're going to examine these verses in greater detail, of course, when we get to chapter 16. But for now, just notice the main point Jesus is making at the start of this chapter. He says the things he's been speaking about, which would refer back into chapter 15, of course, 
were being given to the disciples to keep them from stumbling, which is to say to keep them from sinning. And the topic, therefore, of chapter 15 is how to be a better disciple, a stronger follower, less likely to stumble, less likely to sin. Notice in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 16, Jesus then goes on to describe the persecution that's going to come upon the church in the time after his departure. He tells the disciples, you're going to have to face this persecution, so be ready for it and face it properly. You know, men who are facing severe persecution or even death can respond in some pretty foolish ways, even compromising what they believe in the face of those threats. So Jesus is telling them here in chapter 15, where we're going next, that they have to be prepared to withstand these things. And how to be prepared, how not to stumble. Now, why have I given you so much on context? Why have I taken you back to 14? And now why have I jumped you into 16? Because you have to understand this context and keep it at the foremost of your mind to guide your understanding of what he is saying in chapter 15. Did you notice the context of 14 and of 16 are exactly the same? In both cases, Jesus speaks to disciples about how to perform well in their duties as church leaders during his absence. The theme is, serve me well by relying on me, even in the face of persecution. He's speaking concerning things that apply only to disciples. Unbelievers have no relationship to this context, to this discussion, to this entire concept of serving Christ, abiding in Christ, being faithful, Suffering persecution for their faith. None of these things have any relevance if you were talking about unbelievers. It's his concern for their stumbling, that is, their sinning, and not serving him well, that is the dominant idea for all that he's teaching. How do you do your job well while I'm gone? Now, I'm emphasizing all of this because there is considerable controversy among scholars, among Bible students and the like, concerning what Jesus says in chapter 15. Personally, I find the controversy entirely unnecessary because, as usual, the context settles the dispute easily enough. But for some reason, for many, the context is lost. We're going to explore this controversy in steps as we move through the text. But, of course, our first priority is just to understand what Jesus says in chapter 15. First, Jesus will teach that a disciple must abide or remain in Christ in order to serve him well. And then, secondly, Jesus is going to explain that the family of God must love one another since we will be universally rejected and hated by the world like he was. And he does all of this beginning with the final of his I am statements and a beautiful figure of speech that most of us have heard, I'm sure. Let's look there. Chapter 15. Now, finally, verse one. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, first, as I said, we notice Jesus is teaching using a figure of speech. We have a grapevine, we have the vine dresser who cares for it, and the process that a vine dresser goes through to cultivate the vine. The grapevine in Scripture is one of three plants that typically symbolizes Israel, the other two being the fig tree and the olive tree. 
Since Jesus and all his disciples are Jewish, well, then the use of a grapevine seems an appropriate metaphor. But in this case, the lesson Jesus is teaching goes well beyond Israel proper. Therefore, we can't say Jesus chose the metaphor of a grapevine so that he could teach us something about Israel. That's too narrow in application, because as you're going to see in the chapter, he's using a grapevine because of the peculiar ways that vine dressers cultivated those plants. That's the reason he chose a grapevine here, not because of its relationship to Israel. So understanding how grapevines are dressed by vine dressers turns out to be a very important detail to understanding the lesson properly. And we'll do that here as we go along. First, Jesus begins by identifying the father as the vine dresser, and then he identifies himself as the vine, as the plant. Now, to apply that metaphor, to start out with, we understand that Jesus is saying that the body of Christ is that vine plant, while the Father is the one managing the growth and the production of that plant. Later in verse 5, Jesus tells us that the disciples are the branches, which fits with the metaphor of Jesus being the body, the vine. Notice Jesus does not distinguish between the different types of branches in the metaphor. Let me say that again. He does not distinguish between the different types of branches. He says to the disciples, you are the branches, plural. You're not a certain branch. You're not a certain kind of the branch. You are the branches. This is the first of several details in the chapter that you need to notice if you're going to interpret Jesus's figure of speech properly. All branches represent all disciples of Christ. So therefore, the different types of branches, which he's mentioned here, must be differentiating different types of disciples within the body of Christ. Moving to verse two, Jesus says every branch in Christ that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, the first thing to notice in this verse is Jesus's use of the phrase in me. Given the figure of speech Jesus is using here, that of a plant and branches in a plant, well, the phrase in me sort of fits the context of the metaphor, right? I mean, branches can be said to be in the vine in the sense that they come forth from it and they receive their nourishment from it. So it fits the metaphor. But moving to the spiritual application, what does it mean to be in me as a disciple of Christ? Well, in Scripture, the phrase in Christ or in me, as he says here, has one consistent meaning that never varies in the New Testament. It always refers to someone who's been born again. As Paul says in Romans 8, 1, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Once again, we find a second detail here that confirms that all the branches of the vine represent Christ's disciples. Here in verse 2, we start with a branch that is in Christ, and yet it does not bear fruit. Now, what does it mean that it does not bear fruit? Well, bearing fruit is another common picture or metaphor in Scripture, a figure of speech. It consistently refers to the byproduct of a disciple's faithful and obedient reliance on the Spirit. When you walk in the Spirit, you bear fruit. When you walk in your flesh, you don't bear fruit. Now, the word in Greek, bear, bear fruit, does not mean to show or to display. It simply means to produce. Just as a branch of a grapevine produces fruit, so may a disciple produce spiritual fruit. That distinction, friends, is very important because the term bearing fruit in Scripture doesn't necessarily require an outward display or change. The essence of bearing fruit is living in obedience to Christ. When you say bear fruit, that's what you mean. Obeying the Lord, obeying his commandments, 
which in most cases will be manifested in some way. Yes, but visibility isn't the goal. Pleasing the Lord is the goal. And you can see that very clearly in something Paul says in Romans chapter seven, verse four. Paul says this. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Paul says you've been joined to Christ by his spirit so that you might bear fruit. Notice Paul says you are to bear fruit, though, for God, not on display for men necessarily, but it's for God's purpose and pleasure that you do what you do. Also, notice Paul doesn't say you will bear fruit. You shall bear fruit. You must bear fruit. Paul says you might bear fruit that you might bear fruit for God. In other words, some believers will bear fruit while other believers will not bear fruit. And Paul says this in Colossians chapter one, verse nine. He says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Here you see the full process represented in those two verses. First, in verse 9, Paul says his readers, he says he prays and asks that they might or may be filled with the knowledge of his will, which would be to know his commandments. And then secondly, Paul says, now that you know his commandments, I would then ask that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, which is a way of saying keep those commandments. And then next, he says, by keeping the commandments, his disciples will bear or produce fruit in good works. Notice this process is one that only a believer can participate in. And yet, by that same token, it's not assured. Notice the tone here of Paul. He implies that a believer might not move through all three of these steps, which is why he's praying and asking that this church would, in fact, do so. And so it is for all believers. Just as Jesus describes in the parable of the four soils in Luke chapter 8, not all believers will bear fruit. Some are choked off by the pleasures and cares and worries of life, leading them to fail in their intended mission, which is to bear fruit for God. We're coming to the same understanding time and time again. You could be a believer without fruit. That is a possibility which explains all the exhortation to do otherwise. The very fact that in verse two of John 14, that Jesus has begun to teach of Two kinds of branches, those that produce fruit and those that don't, is itself evidence that there are these possibilities in the body of Christ. Now, let's return to chapter 15. Jesus explains what happens to that believer who fails to produce fruit. He says that branch will be taken away. The Greek word for taken away is ero. My English Bible chose to translate that word as taken away. But the Greek word has another equally valid meaning. Instead of taken away, arrow can also be translated lifted up. This is where a knowledge of how vine dressers do their work is so important to arriving at a correct understanding of what Jesus is saying. On a grapevine, you will find, generally speaking, three kinds of branches. First, there are the new branches. They're coming out, shoots that are coming out. They're too immature to produce any fruit yet. Secondly, you have mature branches that bear fruit consistently every year. Thirdly, you may have fully developed branches that fail to produce fruit reliably for some reason. To maximize fruit on the vine, 
a vine dresser would respond differently to each type of branch as he is cultivating the plant. In the case of those young, immature branches, in the springtime, the vine dresser will lift them up by securing them to a trellis or to other mature branches to give them support while they grow. His goal is to keep those immature branches from dropping and dragging on the ground and becoming moldy and diseased and distressed. In time, those immature branches will grow to support themselves. And ultimately, the vine dresser is expecting that these branches will become fruit bearing in time. These are the branches Jesus is speaking about at the beginning of verse two. Every branch that does not produce fruit, the father will lift up. Anyone familiar with how grapevines were cultivated, and certainly in Jesus' day it would have been fairly common knowledge, would have recognized that Jesus' use of this term arrow was referring to the springtime practice of tying up young, immature vines that don't have any fruit on them. No fruit-producing plant produces fruit instantly, does it? It takes time to get there. And so it is with every believer. The Father ensures that immature believers are given an opportunity to mature through the Spirit, by His Word, Young believers are lifted up and supported by more mature members within the body of Christ. And in time, babes in Christ become stronger and are expected to bear fruit. That's the normal course of progress. It's natural in this case for Jesus to begin his figure of speech referring to this particular branch because look at who he's talking to. He's speaking to a group of relatively immature and certainly fragile disciples. Within mere hours, they're all going to deny him and abandon him. In his time of need, they need encouragement. They're going to need the Lord's patience as he waits for them to respond. He's supporting them even now, as it were. And in the days that follow his resurrection, he's going to appear to them and teach them all the more for the same reason. In time, though, he expects his loving care to be repaid with fruit. Moving into verse two, a little further, Jesus mentions a second group of branches. Those that do produce fruit. These, he says, will be pruned by the vine dresser so that they may bear more fruit, Jesus says. Now, toward the end of the growing season, the vine dresser prunes the branches that have proven to bear fruit reliably in that year. The pruning makes those branches grow out even stronger in the next season. And as that branch gets stronger, it has the potential to hold even more fruit. And in that way, the pruning maximizes the production of fruit from that vine in the following year. In the same way, the father takes note among his disciples of who is reliably producing fruit. That reliable production is rewarded with pruning. Pruning. Pruning is a metaphor in Scripture for testing and trials and circumstances and challenges of one kind or another that will result in strengthening us spiritually. And we're not just talking here about bad experiences like persecution, though certainly that is an example of pruning. But we're also talking about a lot of things you can encounter far more often. Any opportunity that the Lord may use to draw you out of your comfort zone so that you might be strengthened spiritually by something new, like accepting new responsibilities to serve the Lord in your church or participating in a Bible study or in a mission trip. Those would be examples, perhaps, of how they can prune you or volunteering to the church nursery. That's one That would really prune me. How about praying aloud for someone in a group setting? That would be a pruning opportunity. Making a sacrificial financial commitment. Taking a public stand for your faith. Sharing the gospel with a stranger. These moments come in and out of our days often. Experiences like that will strengthen us 
spiritually so that when the next experience comes, we're that much better prepared, we're that much stronger spiritually to respond to it in a healthy way. And therefore, more fruit, the cycle just reinforces itself. But notice who receives this treatment. Believers who are already inclined to produce fruit at some level. Now, you might have assumed that who would God go after with the pruning shears? Wouldn't it be those people who are unproductive, who need a little kick in the pants, who who need to be helped to be stronger? Well, the truth is exactly the opposite. The disciple with the greatest potential and with a good track record of obedience gets the most attention from the father. And you should look at your pruning experiences that way. Look at them as a vote of confidence from the father. It's a blessing, even if it feels like one in disguise. Now, already... By this point, in verse 2 of this chapter, you can clearly see Jesus distinguishing between disciples based on the degree of fruit they produce. But unfortunately, some have looked at these details and have come away with the wrong conclusion concerning what Jesus is saying. They have concluded that Jesus is contrasting believers with unbelievers in this discourse. That is to say, if you produce fruit, you're a believer, but if you fail to produce fruit, well, you're not. I think Jesus knew that his words here might be read in this way and that this view might emerge. And so look at what he says in verse three, just to make the point clearly in case you were getting the wrong idea right from the start. Verse three, Jesus says to his disciples that they're already clean because of the words he'd already spoken to them. What what clean means, of course, is spiritually clean. That is to being saved. And what's notable here in verse three is he's broken out of the metaphor. This has no relationship to the vine or anything else. He's put pause on his metaphor just long enough to step out and say, let me just correct you on this before we go too far. He wants you to understand and settle this concern. Simply put, his subject matter in chapter 15 doesn't concern unbelievers whatsoever. They're not on the map. They're not even on the page. They're not a matter of the discussion whatsoever. They're not in the context of chapter 14. They're not in the context of chapter 16. They didn't appear magically in the middle and then go away after it. They're not a part of this conversation whatsoever. His conversation is directed at and is speaking about believers and what can happen to us. Notice, however, if you get that wrong, you actually gut the application of this. Because when I start thinking it's talking about unbelievers, I can take myself out of the picture. I can say, well, I'm not worried about this. It's not me. But then we miss the whole point of what he's trying to get at. Look in verse four. Jesus then gives his disciples the exhortation that this chapter is so renowned for, the exhortation to abide. Jesus says, abide in me. Now, I've said in the past, as we've looked at this word in a couple of other chapters, abide means to remain or to stay or to endure In chapter 6, you may remember when we were looking at Jesus talking to the crowd after he fed them, Jesus used this word in reference to the eternal security of a believer. He taught that once you are joined to Christ by faith, he will abide in you and you will abide in him. And in that context, Jesus is using the word regarding your security in salvation. And now in this chapter, Jesus uses the word abide in a different way to describe another aspect of our relationship with him. And you can see the switch by noticing the change in context. While in chapter 6, the context was Jesus teaching a crowd, how do you obtain eternal life? And his answer to the crowd was, you need to abide in me, speaking about salvation. In that context, remaining in Christ or abiding in Christ refers to the eternal union that we have with him by faith. Now, in chapter 15, The context is not how do you obtain eternal life? The context is bearing fruit, bearing fruit. 
And the answer to how you bear fruit is to abide in Christ. But now in a different sense, in this context, bearing fruit is the conditional outcome of depending on Christ. Since the outcome in chapter 15 is in question, some do, some don't. Well, that tells us automatically we're not talking about salvation in chapter 15. Chapter 15, if it were about salvation, would be suggesting that you might or might not have salvation depending on what you do. That would be works-based theology, and clearly that's not what Jesus is talking about. So the change in context from 6 to now 15 tells us Jesus has likewise shifted his use of the word, abiding. Earlier it was about eternal security, now it's about the performing of a disciple, relying on Christ in their work. Now in verse 5, Jesus begins to explain the road to successfully abiding in Christ. First, he says that we are his branches and he is our supply. Now, he's continuing back into the figure of speech here, of course. The figure of speech says very simply that you can't expect a branch to do anything if it's separated from the rest of the vine. And that's just obvious to anyone who knows anything about plants. And likewise, a disciple can't expect to bear fruit apart from the Lord who empowers him to do so. Similarly obvious, you have to remain connected. It means relying on him for the work you accomplish. It means receiving your nourishment, that is your supply from Christ, as opposed to getting it from elsewhere. He is the source, in other words, of truth, our reason for our hope, our focus in life. But what does it mean to abide in Christ specifically? What does it look like? Let's ask some questions. Why did you get up this morning? Out of bed, out of your house. Why did you start your day? Was it to go to work, to do some housework, to take care of kids? Or was it to serve the Lord? To find new ways to please him. Where do you turn for your answers to life's questions? Oprah? (laughs) Dr. Phil? Wikipedia? Or do you go to the word? Do you seek it from the scriptures? And when you do want to go bear fruit by doing something, by accomplishing something for God, how do you approach the work? Do you approach it by relying on your own power? Through sheer force of ego? Determination? Stick-to-it-ness, brilliance? Is that what you're relying on? Is that what convinces you you'll be successful? Or do you wait patiently for doors to open? Do you make a five-year plan and then you stubbornly pursue that so that you can ensure that when those five years are up, you'll be able to turn back and tell all your friends, I did what I said I was going to do? Or do you move gently by the Spirit, changing plans as He reveals your next step, unafraid to be wrong because you'd rather know the truth than be right? Abiding means acknowledging Jesus runs the church and he should rule in your heart. That's what abiding means. And it looks a million ways, but it always has that same gentle sense of dependence. And maybe most importantly of all, do you display godliness in your life, in your walk as a Christian? Do you speak as Christ did with grace, love, gently, kindly, but always with the truth? Or do you give generously in all things, seeking nothing in return with special concern for the weak and needy? Do you withhold judgment of others? Do you submit to your elders? Do you avoid disputes? Do you guard your speech? Do you love others above yourself? In other words, do you keep his commandments? More than anything else, abiding in Christ means obeying Christ. It's interesting as a teacher, you get to see expressions when you teach. And it's funny, as I went down that list, more and more heads went down. I don't think anybody was looking at me at the end of it all. Don't worry, I feel the same way. And what of those believers who don't abide? 
Well, in verse 6, Jesus said, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, I said earlier that there were three types of branches, generally speaking, on a grapevine, right? The third of those were the kind that fully develop, but they fail to produce fruit reliably for some reason. And in the fall, at the end of the growing season, the vine dresser would go through the field and he'll take off, he'll cut off any branch that has not produced fruit by the end of that season. And this is different than pruning. Pruning is where you cut off part of a living branch to strengthen it and get it coming back. Here we're talking about actually separating it at the stalk of the vine, just cutting it off and getting rid of it altogether. You're doing that because you want to eliminate any possibility of that branch taking resources out of the vine in the future and doing nothing with them. And so when you cut off a branch, you eliminate any possibility that it's going to bear fruit again. Those cuttings are eventually gathered at the end of the season and they're moved into the field in one spot and then they're all burned. Now, it's this final disposition of all of these branches that becomes a puzzling and for some a polarizing detail in this figure of speech. Because people question, what does it mean that a disciple is, quote, cut off? And what does it mean that he is in fire? Well, naturally, it leads some anyway to conclude Jesus is speaking of unbelievers here. And for the worst of the worst, it leads people to think that a believer has become an unbeliever. That is to lose salvation, which is clearly a false interpretation. But these things are out there and they're floating around because of these details in the metaphor. They interpret, for example, the fire to picture the judgment fires of hell. Certainly, fire is used as a picture of the consuming judgment that's coming for unbelievers. But on the other hand, fire is also commonly used as a picture of judgment for the believer at the judgment seat of Christ, as you can see in 1 Corinthians 3. So you can't automatically conclude that just because the word fire appears on the page, that that means hell, because we have an equally valid alternative explanation. So it just leaves the question unanswered. Once again, you have to let the context drive your interpretation. And once again, from everything we've seen in the context, you have to conclude he's talking about believers. In fact, Jesus's entire teaching in this chapter is an exhortation to abide. He's warning of the possibility of doing otherwise. This isn't a discussion of salvation because you can't move in or out of salvation. Therefore, everything points to a warning here to believers and a consequence for believers. So now we just have to do the work of explaining this reference to cutting off and burning in that context. Is there an explanation? Well, yes. And the answer is, don't make too much of this. On the one hand, it makes perfect sense that Jesus included this detail of burning the branches in this figure of speech, because that's exactly what these vine dressers do. They burned the wood when they were done with it. But the key to understanding why that detail is so important is to understand why vine dressers burned the wood in the first place. Great wood has no good use. You can't use it for building anything. You don't typically use it for crafts. You don't even burn it to heat homes because it's typically not enough. It's not big enough. It's very small pieces of wood. It doesn't have much purpose. It is literally useless material. And therefore, if a branch of a grapevine does not do the one and only thing it's good for, which is produce fruit, then it's burned because, friends, that's what you do with trash. That's what you do with something that has no value to anyone and no purpose. So Jesus includes this detail to be true to the metaphor, but also to emphasize the uselessness of a branch that doesn't bear fruit. It serves no purpose to the father that a disciple do nothing as he's commanded to do. You are useless to the father, to the vine dresser, if you don't respond to his commandments with obedience and good works. Friends, how sad is it to consider that there are those within the body of Christ who serve no useful purpose for the Lord who saved them? 
and yet they exist. Remember James's exhortation to the believer who does not abide? James 2.20, he says, But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? The very thing we're talking about here. You've been granted salvation, new life in Christ, but you've been given that so that you would abide in him for the purpose of glorifying the Father with your good works, and that is your fruit. Just as that branch existed only to produce grapes, so they're cut off from the vine. And what that means, then, is in the sense that they are removed from service to the Lord. Either by lack of new opportunity or by the Father withholding the Spirit's counsel or the grace to serve Him in some other context, maybe even denying that Christian the fellowship of the body of Christ where opportunities for service could emerge, opportunities for repentance could emerge, opportunities for growth could emerge. But by cutting that person off one way or another, the the Lord has neutralized that disciple. They will never again have an opportunity to produce fruit. They will wander off. They are believers still saved by grace, not by works. You didn't gain your salvation by what you do. You're not going to lose it by what you do or don't do. But that's not the issue on the page, is it? The issue is remaining faithful to his commandments. He has no obligation. The father has no obligation to continue working with disciples who refuse to show love to Christ by not obeying his commandments. And as the Lord wills, such a Christian may be left to spiral downward into spiritual isolation. This is exactly the same situation that the writer of Hebrews is talking about in chapter 6, among other places. Listen to these words in chapter 6 in light of what we've just been discussing and see how closely they mirror what John is writing in chapter 15. Hebrews 6, 4. For in the case of those who've been once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, well, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Look how similar those, these two messages are. All the words are even the same, aren't they? You can see the parallels. A believer, given all the advantages of faith, who then falls away, that is, ceases to abide in Christ, that person is at risk of never coming back. Like the ground, the writer says, who receives good things from heaven, and in some cases they could produce Good result, that is, something useful to the one who tilled that ground and made it produce in the first place, to the Lord. Or they can produce no fruit and become worthless to God, close to being cursed. Like the branches that serve no good purpose, they're burned. In the sense of the metaphor, it's simply a description of useless land, like useless branches. Not burned because they're being judged in eternal hellfire. That's not the application. The application, though, is still very serious and concerning for that believer who would put themselves in this situation. Of course, we have much better hope for those in the body of Christ, hopefully ourselves included. So Jesus moves now to the opposite outcome in the parable, in the, in the metaphor of John 15. He moves to those who do abide. In verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So for those branches that do abide in Christ, friends, anything is possible. When we remain close in connection to Christ, when the word of God remains in us, we're in a position to know his will. And then if we're walking in his will, we're walking with his power and intent, for he will not be frustrated in his will. And so then we can do anything. Though, of course, it's not us doing it. Remember earlier, Jesus said if the disciples asked for anything in his name, he would see it done. Well, we explained then that doing those things in the name of Jesus meant acting in accordance with his will and his word. So here again, those who abide in Christ and in his word are in a position to naturally know his will and to act according to it. And when you're abiding that closely, when your thoughts are his thoughts, when your actions are his actions, when you two are basically walking in lockstep, then you can ask anything confidently because you're asking what he wants. He's there before you were. This is a blanket promise that to any abiding disciple, when you raise up your petitions, Jesus will respond affirmatively because your petitions are spirit-inspired. What an incentive to be abiding. Wouldn't you love to be in a position where, as you make requests, you're seeing those things come to pass? But, of course, that's because you know him so well. Also notice in verse 7, this is expressed as a conditional statement. Jesus says, if you abide in me, which is further proof that this is not a guarantee. This is not a definition of a Christian. This is a possibility for a Christian. Jesus says in verse 8, the Father is glorified. When we're working this closely together, you can accomplish much when you walk closely with Christ. And when you do that, you produce good works, which then in turn glorify the Father. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a blanket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. That's the whole point. It's not how popular you can be, of course. It's not how many people praise your name or know what you did. The idea is that the Father be praised. In fact, generally speaking, the more you stay in the shadows, the more Christ and the Father will be glorified. The model for how closely Christ wants us to walk with him is the closeness he had with the Father, he says. In verses 9 and 10, he says, He was loved for his obedience to the Father, and then he abided in his Father's love. And Jesus made his goal abiding in his father's love. He was satisfied by his father's approval. He didn't need anything more. Consider this. That's what Paul means in Philippians when he says he did not consider equality with the father a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and becomes lower than angels. He gives up all of that. Why? Because he would rather have the father's love. He wants that more than he wants anything else. If going to a Roman cross pleases my father, then that's what I'm going to go do. That's your model for abiding in Christ. Can we say we're satisfied, we're honestly satisfied, even driven to please Christ, to crave his love over the love of the world? We make obeying him a greater goal than pleasing ourselves. Now, we can't say that all the time. But if we can get that to be a bigger and bigger part of our life, then we are abiding in Christ more and more. And as we abide in him more and more, his love becomes ever present, more evident more of a factor of change in our life. And as you consider all of that, and as you consider the sacrifices that are required in order to do that, the self-sacrifices, the challenges that come with that, the crucifixion of flesh that will have to take place in order for that to happen, 
There's a part of you. There is a there's a little voice somewhere deep inside telling you right now that won't be easy and it won't be fun. Do you have a suspicion that maybe that life will be worse on the other side of that process than it is today? Some of the joy in your life will be robbed. Some of the things that you get up for in the morning won't be there anymore. That the whole thing becomes drudgery and a challenge and and just a terrible thing you have to endure to the end. If so, that's the enemy lying to you. It's the enemy suggesting that the course that the Lord prescribes robs you of joy that you can give yourself. Remember what he said to the woman in the garden in chapter three of Genesis? He says, you will not die for God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, implying that there was something good being withheld. That's why Jesus says in verse 11, he has given these instructions so that we might know his joy. What does he mean, of course, what it felt like in terms of joy for him to do exactly what the father wanted. And then he says, so that your joy would be full. Because, friends, the joy we try to give ourselves is so incomplete and so inadequate and so temporary, so fleeting. The thing that causes us to be joyful today will seem common tomorrow. So we've got to do more. You ever notice that about the culture of the unbelieving world? Whatever was norm today has to be amped up tomorrow. Everything has to be accelerated, increased. Why? Because the joy of the world is just not going to do it for very long before we have to find the next thing. That joy is always out of reach. But Jesus says, if you can sacrifice what you want for what the Father wants or what he wants, serve in his will and according to his commandments, there's a joy that comes with that that you can't understand until you know it. And when you know it, nothing else in this world equals it. And we'll finish with John 15, verses 12 through 17. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends for all the things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you that you love one another. So serving Christ successfully depends on abiding in him. We've heard that. And now he adds Oh, and by the way, love one another like I've loved you. Our love for one another in the body of Christ is supposed to be modeled on the love Jesus showed the church. And the model that Christ left us goes far beyond simply the things we sometimes associate with the word love, like showing courtesy to someone or extending a helping hand to someone, greeting someone nicely, even when you don't want to. There's something in that, yes, but that's not really what Jesus is talking about. He says the greatest form of love. There is simply nothing more a person can do for another person beyond placing your life down or to take it, in other words, for the sake of someone else. And he means, of course, he's willing to make that sacrifice soon in in less than a day. He's going to be on the cross. And so knowing that, he calls them to do very much the same thing. And the point in this is your needs must be subjugated to the needs of those in the body of Christ at every turn. This is the essence of how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Well, 70 times 7. There's no limit. It's not like they have some quotient of forgiveness or deference, or kindness, or generosity. It's not like we only need to do so much and then there's some expectation of return before I have any obligation to go further. That's how the world loves. If that's the best we can do, we haven't advanced the art very much at all. The idea is that we do what Christ did. He says, you were slaves, and that is to say I owed you nothing, but I disclosed these things to you freely. You didn't choose me. I chose you. It's all coming from me. 
And then as I disclose these things, I could truly call you friends. Our relationship with God changed on the cross. We are no longer slaves in the sense that we no longer serve a faceless, mysterious master who commands us without intimacy, which, friends, that was the relationship men knew of God before the cross. Even those in the covenant God gave through Abraham or Israel's covenant at the mountain. Few men knew God to any great degree. In fact, it was a rare thing for a man like Moses to be called the friend of God. For the vast majority, almost universally, the experience of men was that God was faceless. He was exacting in his judgment and he was a distance from us. But now with Christ's death on our behalf, the door has been opened for men to know and experience God in a unique and special way. You and I have this personal relationship. You know, when people say you have a personal relationship with Christ, if you're an unbeliever, that sounds so strange. Um, But it's an exact description of what it means to enter into Christ. You hear from him. You see him in you. You see him working through others. You can ask things of him. He will respond. Nothing like that has been possible with a relationship with God since the garden. We live in this unique period of history. What a privilege it is to be included in the period of grace that God has made available on earth. But that just begs the question that is at the heart of this chapter. What are we making of that opportunity that we are friends with the living God living in us? He says, if you... Keep my commandments, you're my friends. We have choices in this regard. How are we making those choices? Let's go to prayer. Dear Father, convict us to be your friends, not just in word, but in deed. Call us to rely on the love of the brethren so that as we face persecution, trials, temptations, and the like, we won't suffer and and stand alone. Let us understand, Father, that we abide in, in a Christ who has all the power we need and all the wisdom we require to make us successful in the works we try to do. Just help us get our ego and our pride out of the way. Let us crucify this flesh that does you no good and only holds us back. And thank you, Father, for the spirit who makes any of these things possible should we avail ourselves of his wisdom and his power in us. And I thank you for the counsel of Christ tonight, Lord, that we would be reminded that we have this opportunity, this limited opportunity to bear fruit, that you have lifted us up, strengthened us, guided us, given us all the care that any loving father could give. And now you await to see, will we bear fruit? And then finally, Father, for those of us, for all of us, who seek to bear fruit and are making strides to do so, Father, and yet have to experience the pruning that comes with it, Father, give us the the wisdom to see it in its proper light, to understand how it's benefiting us in the long term, and to make the most of it, to make the best use of it, and not to turn away from it so that we may glorify you all the more for the wonderful things you have done for us. I pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.